right, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Dustin Pendle. Good morning, guys. Morning, Brad. Morning. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have you with us as well. And as always, if you have questions, things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. It's also a great way to sign up for our weekly e-blast that comes out, which has some stories on some of the research that we've been doing, as well as some of the other information that may be relevant to your operation. Today, we're going to talk some about hoof care. We'll also talk about the importance of water. And while we realize it's important, we're going to talk about maybe a place you hadn't realized it's quite so important. And we've got a guest on with Greg Deering from the Kansas Farm Bureau. And we'll wrap up talking a little bit about first calf heifers and what we want to do with them. Before we jump into those topics, guys, I did want to tell you, I said, I told Dustin, I went to driver's ed and he, of course, knowing how poorly I drive, asked if I was personally attending. No, I wasn't personally attending. I was taking one of my boys and on the way to driver's ed this morning, uh, I think they must have told most people yesterday to let your kids drive on the way to driver's ed because there were all the teen drivers that were out that were just driving around and Pretty difficult navigating coming into the parking lot because it wasn't just a given that you were going to make it there without touching another vehicle. I know you guys have had some similar experiences. And Brian, I think you said you were thinking about teaching driver's ed? No, no, I was not. No, I, I we we did driver's ed about a year ago, uh, a couple years ago, I guess. And uh, I have a lot of respect for, for instruct, driver's ed instructors. So. <laughs> Yeah, we got to give a big thank you to the to the drivers that all of us that have driven with our kids before you you want to give a big thank you to those drivers ed instructors. So uh, first first topic that we wanted to talk about and really we we've uh, as we come into this time of year, it is you may see some lameness, you may see some other issues, but one of the things that we think about and we talked with Dr. Borman last week about corkscrew claws or some of the other issues. And, and Brian, I'm going to ask you, do you do normally, would you expect cows and bulls to need a foot trimming? Is that normal or typical? It's definitely not typical, Brad. And I think we, we have, we have talked about hoof care a lot recently. And I, I think it just emphasizes the importance of, of the, the foundation that feet and legs provide for cattle, especially out on pasture and, uh, we get into breeding season, what, what bulls can and can't do if they don't have good sound feet. And we're, you know, we talk about hoof care from a veterinary perspective. I think, you know, probably the most common thing we would see as far as hoof disease would be foot rot. So, uh, most producers are probably familiar with it, but, um, foot rots, just bacterial infection between the claws. Um, not usually we don't see it's, it's not a common disease within a herd, uh, we see when we get these wet years and it's muddy, uh, we may see a little bit more of it in a herd. Or we see uh, cattle out on stocks in the fall that damaging the skin between the calls, claws can certainly predispose the cows to foot rot. But, you know, we think about diseases of the foot and legs, foot rot be by far the most common. And, and again, most experienced producers uh, know that foot rot responds very well to antibiotics. And so um, oftentimes there's a, a protocol with a veterinarian that if you see these signs, we treat with antibiotics and most of those will get better without any sort of 
complications and move on. But I think that really the, the real important ones are the ones that don't get better. And so what do we do if we have a, a, a lame cow or bull and we've, we've treated with antibiotics and we're just not seeing a response. And, you know, that's the time where it's either the, the producer or, you know, maybe that's the time to call a veterinarian and have a discussion about, you know, what do we do afterwards? But for me that really the key thing is at that point, you've got to pick up that foot. Um, there's, you just can't do any more as far as diagnosis without probably getting the animal in, having it in the chute, um, and, and taking a look at the foot because it, again, foot rot would be the most common, but there's kind of a whole host of other things that we'd want to make sure anything from, you know, we see penetrating things like wires and nails um, that certainly aren't going to get better with antibiotics. And we can get some pretty severe secondary consequences if we let those go on too long. Uh, we can, you know, we see hoof wall cracks, things like that, where um, just a good basic trimming is probably all that's needed and we can move on. Uh, and, you know, in some cases we see things like strawberry foot rot or papillomatous dermatitis, hairy heel wart. it goes by all those names. Um, those aren't things that Typically, we'll get better with a single dose of antibiotics, and, and producers need to be aware of things like that if, they're, if they were just recently introduced to the herd. But again, all those things require a look at that foot. So, so what you're saying, though, Brian, is a lot of times we, you see a lame cow and you go, oh, she's got foot rot, right? And, and that may be the first judgment. And that foot rot itself kind of in that, like if you looked at that soft spot between your fingers, that little fleshy area that you have between your fingers, cows have a similar soft spot there. So if it gets cracked and gets an infection, that would be, is that typically what we would actually call foot rot? Yeah. Yeah. That's typical. And, and again, most of the time for a, a routine foot rocket, we'll see some swelling above the hoof. You know, that's kind of the other thing we look for. So lame swollen foot, um, if, if you do pick up that foot and again, typically for the kind of the first time, um, you know, if she's not super severely lame, we don't, we'll treat her with antibiotics, but if you pick up that foot, it's got a, a pretty bad smell to it as well, Brad. And if you've seen enough of them, that can almost be diagnostic, pretty but distinct. yeah, it's that, yeah. yeah, it's that soft spot between the claws is where we see that foot rot infection. But then if, it, but then if it, doesn't get better and they can be pretty lame with that but if it doesn't get better with antibiotics what you're saying is well you're gonna have to look at that you're gonna have to figure out what's going on because yeah. it's probably not foot rot yeah that's right if yeah. it's not getting better with antibiotics it's probably not foot rot okay excellent i think that's something to keep a watch on we will see that at times a year and i know different parts of the country are going through different weather patterns but you'll see that when they have muddy, boggy areas, they step on something, crack their foot, get some stuff up in there, easy to get an infection. You can also see that in the summertime when they just step on something. Uh, but it is good to keep a close eye on the cows and as they move around, because many of those things are not going to just get better on their own. So as Brian said, be sure to take a look if you need to. The other thing that, that we, and I think this is interesting, is we think of this time of the production cycle. We've got calves and let's say, let's say I'm calving in March or February. My calves are three <laughs> to four months old. How much water do they need? And Philip, I'll, I'll ask you how much water do they need and why do they need water when they're drinking milk all the time? Well, the, <clears throat> I think 
um, from the the amount, if we're thinking about the amount, I think just open access and ad libitum access to, to water. Um, and kind of goes back to our, our discussion was last week or a couple weeks ago on the, the bottle calf or the bucket calf. We said, you know, we want to make sure they've got access to clean, fresh water every day. And, and calves that are still nursing the cow need that same access to water, even though they are consuming milk. Because milk, when the, that calf suckles, it causes a, a reflex reaction that allows that milk to bypass the rumen and go to the uh, true stomach and the small intestine. Because in the rumen, what would happen is that that high-quality milk protein would actually be downgraded to a lower-quality microbial protein. And so the, the animal avoids that by bypassing that milk, or sorry, by allowing that milk to bypass the rumen. But then the problem is once the calf starts to eat some solid food here, some grass and some things like that, they don't have any water or liquid going into the rumen. And that liquid in there is important because it helps the, the rumen contractions mix that um, forage and feed better. And that mixing is what allows those microbes in the rumen to come in contact with the feed particles and attach to those feed particles to start that digestion process. So, so they have to be able to get water as the as you get to is it kind of this time when does all that happen what what age are the calves when that happens well those those calves are depending on how much milk your cows are producing those calves are going to start nibbling on grass and eating grass at around a month of age or so and then it's going to it's going to um increase a little bit um there for the next month or so but you know that, that cow her lactation curve peaks at about 60 days after calving. And so at that point, the milk production starts to decline. And so that calf starts to consume more and more grass and starts to rely more and more on that digestion of that grass for his nutrient requirements. Absolutely. And, and Dustin, you mentioned you, you'd had some conversations about just thinking about in general the importance of clean water as well yeah so yesterday i was sitting in a uh a student's phd students he was proposing to do some research looking at the impacts of water quality and also heat and cold stress on a carcass and i, I get the the heat stress and the cold stress how that could impact the the, the animal and, the, and ultimately the carcass the quality of the of the carcass but when he proposed water quality, that just kind of it jumped out at me as being, well, you know, I, mean, I was driving to Kansas City a couple of weeks ago, and right there north side of the interstate, there's a big pond and a bunch of cows were standing in it. And I, I guess quality never came into, never thought about water quality and how that might impact uh, an animal. Yeah, yeah, and so there's there's been a little bit of research, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, we don't really have a whole lot of knowledge on water other than make sure it's available in um, adequate quantities and test it for any contaminants. Um, but um, there may be some other things that we don't know about water. Um, I, can, I can refer to a, a study where they looked at um, cow-calf pairs drinking from a well versus drinking from ponds and streams, and those the weaning weights on those calves were 
I think, 20 or 30 pounds heavier from the ones that were drinking out of well water versus ones that were drinking out of ponds and streams. And so quality of water probably has an impact uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. That's an impressive difference. And I, and I think we don't think about it on, on both sides, both the cows and the calves. But, of course, the calves have to drink water. And it's, it's interesting as you talk about that role in rumen development and rumen functionality because the milk is bypassing the rumen. And, and, and I think, Brian, as we think about putting our water facilities together, anything specific you'd think about relative to to now going, hey, I don't just have cows drinking. I've got maybe these young calves. Yeah, I, um, access is always a, a huge issue, Brad. And um, so we, we think about if we're, if we're watering out of uh, man-made structures, we need to make sure that calves are able to access that. Uh, in the summertime, uh, we see a lot of water access issues in the wintertime when things are freezing. And so uh, it's, you know, a, a ball a ball valve sticks, a water line breaks, and then cows don't have access and we can see some potential issues um, after that. I, I think, Brad, I think just overall of this discussion, we, we really do water a disservice as a nutrient. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about other nutrients and feed ingredients and things like that. And quite honestly, from a veterinary perspective, water might be the most important nutrient and we give it probably the least amount of consideration oh and it's it's so critical but it is if you tie it into some of our previous discussions where we've talked about rotating pastures or being sure you leave adequate forage well well one of my big limiting factors is access to water right i've got to have enough water in each of those areas that i can move cattle around and it's pretty easy to say well they can drink out of the a pond for a little bit or they can drink out of that area for a little bit but but i think that water quality bleeds through into everything right there's there's a lot of importance there and we'll we'll follow up on that topic and as more research comes out uh, we'd be happy to share that with you but this leads us to our cattle chat checklist for this week our bci cattle chat checklist this week are five tips for maintaining good water on your operation Number five, maintain good footing around the water facilities. Number four, the facility should be designed for young calves. Number three, monitor the water for potential toxins. Number two, avoid contamination. And number one, provide adequate quantity of water. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat checklist for this week. We're happy to have a chance today to catch up with Greg Deering from the Kansas Farm Bureau. And he has a podcast that's called Inside Ag that we thought may be of interest to to some of our listeners. And I I know, Greg, you've had several topics that uh, Kansas Farm Bureau has talked about and is really thinking about as we come into the summer months. Yes, we have. um, Some of those most recently probably directly related to your or most interesting to your listeners. I think one of the most recent episodes was on the direct marketing of beef with one of our members who had a really successful 2020 with all that was going on with the pandemic. Uh, We've talked about the FSA reopening and kind of some of the programs coming down the line with them. And we've also had some folks on to talk about the rural vet workforce 
task force going on right now trying to address some of the shortages across Kansas in that area. And most recently here, just today, I uploaded a segment with Robin Reed on the Kansas Land Values book in, for 2020 and kind of looking at what's happening going into 2021 here with the values on ag land. That's excellent. I think I think that's a, a lot of good topics there and always of interest to see what's happening with the land values. And it doesn't always tie with the residential marketplace, right? The ag land is a little bit different. I know that's a, a topic that's always of interest. And I know you've had some questions related to, and, and not just in Kansas, but we see ag tax law changing a little bit. And especially as we look at either estate or passing some of that along is can be very challenging. That's right. And one of the or a couple of the big things that we're tracking right now are some proposals in Washington, D.C. that would really change how a state law works, uh, starting with the repeal of stepped up basis and also taxing or assessing capital gains at the date of death. Um, these are two kind of hidden issues that don't really, I mean, they, they are part of the estate tax process, but it, this would fundamentally shift when and how producers would be paying taxes on their estates. And this is a big one that I know we have our members contacting senators and representatives trying to get this uh, in a, at least if it does pass, it is just a proposal now, but it, there needs to be serious thought on how this would affect family gener or family operations, especially those generational farms that are going to have a, a large amount of capital gains on them just from the very fact that the land has been with the same owner for several decades. Yeah, that's it. That becomes the issue, right? So you have the if you if you bought it for a price and have had a lot of appreciation on the land, while that's a good thing, that's a capital gains tax and it can be a cash flow issue. And Dustin, I know you've you've had at least some discussions on this. Do you have any thoughts on on this topic? Maybe not that specific bill, but in general. Uh, I guess I haven't followed the exact proposal. What the, the new administration is? Are they looking to eliminate the stepped up basis? Is that the proposal? That is my understanding. Um, nobody should be taking tax advice from me. I am a communications professional, so. <laughs> but uh, my under, my understanding is is that they would eliminate the stepped up basis. So the, and then, actually assess capital gains. They would treat the death of a family member as a sale and and assess capital gains at that point in time. Yeah, and you no, may. You may touch on the stepped-up basis, Dustin, and what that. What are the implications of that? What does that uh, mean? Well, my understanding, you know, I'm not a, a tax or a expert or a legal expert, and so when somebody when somebody uh, inherits an asset from a deceased, uh, and then those and it increases in value, as you indicated, right? That's a capital gains, and those capital gains are taxable if they're eventually sold by that inheritor. Uh, and so the stepped up basis that we keep talking about, my understanding is that that allows that uh, person who inherited that to minimize the tax bill. 
if I understand that correctly. Uh, and so that's in a real quick nutshell, I think is what you're, you're talking about, Brad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that becomes the, it's back to the laws are changing and you can't set up your transition plan once and forget it. I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of what I'm hearing, right? If you've got a transition plan set up and the laws change, you may need to revisit and say, do we still have the, the best plan for this situation? And I think it's important to be aware of those. And certainly I think that's a, a good topic that's come up. And I, and I know, Greg, you mentioned you, you've done communications, you do some things relative to uh, lots of different forms of media. Do you, do you have any advice if someone does, and, and I may go back to kind of the direct marketing you talked about, if somebody does want to tell their story or tell the story of their operation, do you what would be your top piece of advice for them as an individual rancher from a communications person? Great question, Brad. One of the things that we continually run into here at Kansas Farm Bureau is that our members think what they do isn't interesting outside of rural places and people in the cities don't care what farmers and ranchers are doing on their operations. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. There are so few farmers and ranchers today that everything you're doing is of interest to people in cities. And I will stress this again, that everything that you do somebody somewhere is going to find that very interesting and telling your story is maybe one of the most valuable things that you can do to help people understand where their food comes from. And the next thing that I get is, well, I'm not an expert on anything. How can I reliably talk about this? And my answer is always, you are an expert on your operation so if you stick to talking about what you do day in and day out, people are going to find that valuable and they're going to have a better understanding of where their food comes from. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. I'm kind of laughing because Philip and I were on a call recently and uh, we talked about it afterwards. And I thought, ah, this is kind of boring information that we're sharing, right? It's just the kind of the basics and we've talked about it a thousand times and it's kind of boring and I don't know if it's going to resonate. And, and Philip asked me and I go, wow, it was just okay. Afterwards, we got feedback and they said, that was great. They'd had no exposure to ag. They'd had no exposure to some of the stuff we were talking about. And so I was under the misconception it was boring because I have heard it several times. I know the material but, but they didn't. So great, great point. And it was great having you spend some time with us, Greg. And again, it's Greg Deering, Kansas Farm Bureau, and he has a podcast called Inside Ag with several great topics in the past and coming up. So thanks, Greg. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Last topic I wanted to hit on today, guys, is first calf heifers. And, and we talked about before calving how important it is for them to have good body condition and now they've calved, they're out, if they're spring calvers, they're out with the herd, or should they be? Philip, how, how should I manage these first calf heifers? When can I put them back with the cow herd? Well, it, Brad, I would suggest that, that we keep them separate through this first lactation period um, before we put them with the mature cows, because they're, they need special care still. They're, they're still growing quite a bit um, at this stage, plus they've got a calf on their side. 
Um, it's a lot easier for them to start losing body condition here um, through the uh, breeding season or through the summer and they get too thin um, in, in going into next winter, things like that. So, so they're not mature yet and they uh, have a lot of growing left to do and we need to, to manage them separately if at all possible. She, she may only weigh 80, 85% of her mature weight when she has that first calf, right? So obviously still has a, has a ways to go in growth as she goes forward. And Dustin, we've, we've talked before that ha- having to replace those heifers is expensive and that becomes a, that can become an important part operationally from an economic perspective, how I manage these first calf heifers. Yeah. We've talked about this, you know, prior, uh, whether you're talking about replacing your heifer calves uh, versus raising your own replacements. And, you know, there's a lot of tools out there that can help decide that, but at the end of the day, right, it is, it is expensive and, and it's definitely something that you want to stay on top of. So how big a deal is it to keep them separate, Philip? I know you said we should, but man, it's a lot easier to just run them with the cows, especially in the summer when we're grazing and you've got other stuff going on, like making hay and doing other things. How, how important is it? Well, I think it's, I mean, it, it's pretty important. If you, you think about when a cow drops out of the herd, you know, most, most of those cows are going to drop out of the herd in the, uh, as a, um, I guess as a re, as a, a rebreed on the, as a first calf heifer, as a rebreed, and then, then maybe as a, as a three-year-old. Um, and so, you know, if we're trying to minimize our costs of, having to develop replacement heifers, making sure that these heifers are properly taken care of so that they rebreed and th- this year and next year, um, that turns into a, a pretty big uh, cost savings from, from having to manage or not having to um, raise additional replacement heifers because your current replacement heifers fell out of the herd too soon. Absolutely. I, I think it's something to think about when you're planning and you're planning forage use. And I know we're going to talk some about forage use on an upcoming episode. So just with your heifers, if you can run them as a separate group, it does make a, a big difference. And then if you can keep your first calf heifer separate, it does make a difference as well. So we've appreciated you joining us today and, and thanks for listening. As always, if you want to send us a topic or a question, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.